The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. I need to probably qualify for um, Jennifer and perhaps a few others that may be um, proper students of of literature and British literature and Shakespeare in particular, Um, but I did find... um, Macbeth to be particularly helpful. I actually was um, looking to to borrow from him last week. So last week we came to Philippians 1, 21 through 26, and we have that magnificent beginning to that, the, the, uh, the, the self-declared um, identity of Paul that um, if you had to summarize, Paul, how would you how would you say, um, how would you want to be remembered, or what would be uh, one sentence to, to capture your, your person and, and who you would desire to express to be? And I think, honestly think if he were to, to express back to us, it would be exactly as he said in 121, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And then he obviously builds that out and, and continues from there. And that was where I initially came across uh, this portion of Macbeth, and I was thinking, um, yeah, there, there's, there's a, a devaluing of life that he and his valuation, and we don't want to live like that. We don't want to so have such a, a diminished view of life. But it, it fit better, perhaps, in our engagement today with our, our engagement with chapter 1, verses 26 through, uh, 27 through 30. So that being said, if you'll be patient, we'll walk through this, and I trust that it will be of value to you. So in Acts 5, scene 5 of Macbeth, Shakespeare expresses his character's view of life and death. And here he states... Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Now, if ever a student of literature needed clarity regarding how to categorize this classic play, I don't know that everybody has to, to read it or study it or be engaged with it in terms of your education, but it's, I think it's a common one. I think anybody would probably say, yes, that was, that was plainly a tragedy. And his, his valuation of life reflects that of tragedy, how he, how he weighed the nature of this temporal experience. And by extension, all who live such lives ought also to be category, or categorized as tragedies. If that's how you value life, if, if that's how you approach things, and say, you know, it's just, at the end of the day, it is just futile. It's fleeting, and it's just a, it's foolishness. Lives perhaps filled with great wealth, a range of experiences, and an abundance of pleasures, but if without Christ, then the, yes, that would be a fair valuation. They truly are, but that of experiencing a a brief candle, a a walking shadow, a poor player. But by magnificent contrast was the life of the man who set aside his resume that outshined his peers and whose trajectory had no clear restrictions before it that he might gain Christ. And what a contrast Paul offers us here in Philippians 3, 8 through 11. The man who testified with joy and chains for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Tragedy can find no place amongst those words, even when spoken by one who forfeited everything and spent his life in service to others only to suffer an unjust death. Because for Paul, as we've labored and as we've established, death was gain. 
Yes. Not because death was his final escape. It wasn't some anti-hero. It wasn't a deliverance from this frustrating experience of life. No, death was gained because death introduced him to the presence of Christ and completed that work which began in him as we reflected back all the way to chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion. He will form Christ in you. And we read, he knew, Paul knew this, that Christ would transform the body of his humble state into conformity with the, with the body of his glory by his working through which he is able to even to subject all things to himself. And so death was gained for him. Death was gained for Paul. But for Macbeth, Macbeth who murdered to be king finished his life with nothing but the hollowness of tragedy. But again, by contrast, Paul, who died to be conformed to Christ and pursued to magnify him through his body by life or by death, finished with a race well won in anticipation of a sure reward. As he testifies in his final letter and the final portions thereof, he states, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What a contrast. What a contrast to one who, who aspired so desperately to have what wasn't his to have, and it took everything from him, versus he who forfeited everything to gain that which was seemingly beyond his reach, the, the power of the resurrection, to know the Son of God, to be transformed, and yet that's exactly what he did experience. And that's the nature of all who are truly in Christ. And that's a man I can follow, and whose commands I will gladly heed, commands that supersede him and are sourced in our Lord and his good expectations for his beloved. And such is where we have now come in our study in Philippians. We've had the establishment of a rich foundation. We spent a number of weeks on that. We, we spent a number of weeks introducing the book, the, the thanksgiving, and all the things, even the prayer, a number of things. He laid a rich foundation. And then we walked through a, a magnificent report of the progress of the gospel. So chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 12 through um, 26 there, I continue to extend that gospel report. So if you were with us, you saw the, the first week it was verses 12 through 18. And then I, it's not just 12 to 18, it's 12 to 20. And then it's, now it's actually 12 to 26, but we finally stopped because that was the progress of the gospels, the progress of Paul's experience, but also, again, the, the, the Lord's gospel advancing. And then we saw this last week, testimony of Paul's exemplary service. And now we've come to the first command of the letter. Now, James, when we were in James, we saw that almost immediately, command, 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 imperative, all over the place. It's very rich and intensive imperatives, but Paul's been waiting one, two, three, four, all the way through 26 verses, laying a foundation, establishing matters of the nature of the gospel, establishing the nature of his affection for the church, establishing the nature of his context and that of the Philippians. And then finally, you get to verse 27, the conclusion, really, of the final portions of chapter 1. And it's here that he introduces his first command for us. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you might think, well, why did he wait so long to say that? Well, because for 26 verses, he's established some things, hasn't he? He's established what the nature of gospel fellowship and gospel worthiness looks like, the nature of Christ at work in his people, the nature of how we pray, the nature of walking well. So now we're prepared to hear something such as to live worthy of the gospel of Christ being our charge. But that being said, are, are we really clear on what he said? Or did we hear what's expected of us? Live worthy. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, 
as we'll see, this command is built out in the following manner for us as we progress through this section. It will include the expectation of our standing firm. That's going to be part of it. Uh, what's it like to live worthy of the gospel of Christ? We'll stand firm. It's going to build itself out in our contending together, not with one another, but contending together. And then it's also going to be built out by not being alarmed by opposition. Expectations that are framed with a clear unity within the body. And I keep pressing that, and I hope that you're appreciating and understanding that, not because that's David's approach to Philippians, but I think you're really going to miss what Paul's communicating in the Philippians if you don't get that central driving aim that he desires them to have unity of mind in the Lord. And you think, well, I don't know. I don't necessarily see that everywhere. And you have a lot of other things you've covered. But here we are. First command. He's built up to it. He's been preparing us for this. And what is it? It's unity-rich command. A unity-rich command. There's expectations to, to serve, to walk, to hold fast, all in the context of a one another. And expectations are, again, framed also with God's gracious gifts to us. He's going to express that at the end. We're not going to get quite that far today, but here we have also a view to God's gracious gifts to us. So stand, uh, to walk worthy of the gospel and be mindful of the things that you expect to stand firm, to contend together, to not be afraid. And we have a view to God's gracious gifts. The gifts of believing. Yes, that's a precious gift. We rejoice in that, but also gift of suffering. That's part of God's good provisions as well. But such will be more the emphasis the following week. But for today, as we prepare to read our text together, I want to, to frame our engagement with it in view of the following two ways. I want you to, to be primed in your thoughts regarding our text in the following ways. First, and perhaps most plainly, with a view to what Paul has just spoken to regarding his continued labor in the flesh as he lived out Christ in this world. And so you remember, he had that point of tension. Uh, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, and well, how did he flesh that out? Well, how did a living Christ look like? It looked like forfeiting or setting aside what was best for him, what was desirable for him, for the benefit of the Philippians. And how did that express itself? Well, convinced of this, convinced that it would be better for me to remain with you, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. And so we have, what would it look like for Paul to, to live as Christ and to remain and to serve? Well, it would look like their progress and joy in the faith. And then second, I also want to have in view with this uh, some things that we've already covered a few times because we've already walked through these verses of verse 6 and verses 9 through 11. We're going to look at them again as we get to chapter 2, 14 to 16. But I also I want to press before you, especially in view of this command, with a view to the three references to the day of Christ in this letter. So we have first in chapter 1, verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work and you will perfect it, until the day of Christ Jesus. And then we saw in verses 9 through 11, as he's praying, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in full knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then we're going to look ahead for just a moment to chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to boast, because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. 
So why these two vantage points as we approach our text? Why, why not just read maybe 1 through 25 or 1 through 27 to, to prime us and preface? Or, or why not just jump into it? Well, I want to approach it with the two vantage points as we read our text because first, Paul plainly views his continued experience in this natural life as one of service. He's made that very clear. If I persevere, if I continue in this temporal life, it's with a view to service for your joy and your progress in the faith. Therefore, any command that he provides for them will in some measure have this objective in view, the view, excuse me, with a view to their joy and progress in the faith. So again, if that's why he's remaining and that's why he's going to continue, every command is going to have a view to their progress and their joy. So I think it's really important to have that in view here. Second, Paul plainly had a view to the day of Christ, a time of Christ's exaltation and the believer's reward. His work and that which he seeks to cultivate in the life of others will ever have a view to that day. He's going to constantly view the day of Christ, the day in which the Son of Man is exalted, the day in which the, the Bride of Christ is, is evaluated and rewarded before him. And so such is the nature of a gospel, a valuable, excuse me, a gospel honoring life. It has a view to the day of Christ. And so he's going to give commands in view of their progress and joy. And he's going to give commands in view of getting you ready, priming you, prepping you, directing you for that day. Now, with these matters in view, let's read our primary passage together. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Paul writes, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, and no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Now, as we've established when introducing this book, the gospel receives a unique measure of attention in this letter. Uh, the ratio of verses to the to, um, to gospel references is one of the highest in the New Testament scriptures to include other gospel-intensive books, such as Romans and Galatians. Paul's references and allusions to the gospel are very intense in this book, especially in chapter 1. We've seen like six or seven of them already in these 20-something verses. Now, how the gospel's developed and its engage, or how he develops the engagement with the gospel is different, though, as it has a view to the church's relationship and the work of the gospel more than it impacts the nature and content of the gospel proper. And so we've already seen in verses 5 and 7 where Paul affirmed that there's, the Philippians are engaging in a fellowship and partnership in the gospel in his open thanksgiving. And then we saw in verses 12 through 18, um, he gives a most encouraging report about the progress of the gospel, sharing of his work and that of others. And here we also note that he so preciously esteemed the value of the gospel over himself. So we remember, I might be um, having those who are preaching out of malice intent toward me, but in this I rejoice that Christ is preached. And so we see in these opening portions here, a fellowship in the gospel, a partnership in the gospel, the declaration of the gospel, a joy in the gospel. So is it unpacking this is the nature of Christ crucified, risen, and exalted? Not necessarily, but what it is um, unpacking for us is the church's engagement, the church's relationship to the gospel. So it's a very gospel-intensive section or book, actually. And then we came to verses uh, 21 through 26. And while there was not an overt uh, association, uh, as we observed in other passages, maybe direct references to the gospel or Christ being preached, 
we're not directly drawing on those gospel terms here, we nevertheless plainly observe the outworking and demonstration of the gospel in and through Paul's own life. Made most plain, again, by his opening statement that we've made reference to a few times now, that of, for to me to live is Christ and die is gain. That's an outworking of the gospel. That's someone who understands the gospel, puts legs and life to the gospel. He doesn't have to say, look, this is what the gospel's done in my life. He's demonstrating it. He's showing that to me, for me to understand the nature of Christ humbled, crucified, buried, and resurrected, that's the nature of how it works itself out. This is the gospel at work in the life of a believer. And so we see that there in our last passage. And now we see this being pressed into application among the Philippians. And so we saw what does the gospel and its outworking look like in Paul's life? We saw that. Now he's directing his attention for really the first time more precisely, more particularly on the Philippians. That's why 12 through 18, then 12 through 19, through 20, and then 12 through 26, I extended, extended, extended that gospel testimony, that gospel advancement. That was Paul's testimony. Now he's shifting his attention to the Philippians. And with this, we have an explicit, uh, excuse me, once more, with an explicit identification with the gospel and its mark on the totality of their lives as they seek to, to strive to live gospel-worthy lives, as is our tension today and our, and our imperative here. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so now we do come back to a more overt engagement with it. And what is that? Well, Here's how you ought to respond to the gospel. You who have already submitted in faith and believed the gospel, not responding in that regard, now responding in growing and walking in it. And the charge is, walk worthy of it. So already, through our work in chapter 1, we can plainly see Paul's intensive focus in the gospel. And this emphasis will continue to contribute to our text today, which had a view to Paul's plans, his hopes, and expectations. And as you recall, he was expecting to join them in the days ahead. Remember, that was a really important element of 21 through 26. What does he say? He says, I, I'm, I'd be better to be with Christ, but it's more to your advantage to be with you. And then he begins to express plans to do what? To physically be in their presence, not just to continue to write them letters, not just to continue to send people like Epaphroditus back and forth or Timothy or other faithful men, but he saw a value in being with them. And so he plans accordingly. But now it's as though he pauses to qualify that come what may, here's your charge. So whether I'm able to come or not able to come, let's, let's go ahead and just set that aside for just a moment. That's my plans. But whatever may come, here is what is expected of you. And then pressing the weight of this emphasis as Paul directs his attention from himself to the Philippians to capture this better, Gerald Hawthorne states, quote, Paul introduces this new section with the adverb monon, translated here only and always. And so he's already said, I plan to be with you, I want to serve with you, but only, only this, listen to this. In doing so, he stresses that the one essential thing so come what may, if I'm able to be with you or not, here's the one essential thing for the Christian is to live a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And again, you think about statements that people make, commentators, teachers, or otherwise, and sometimes it sounds, oh, that's really good, that's really helpful. The one essential thing, only do this. The, the primary directive of Paul's expectation for the Philippians is being captured there, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It sounds really good. It sounds really encouraging. It gives us something to get our hands around, as it were. And so I thought about this statement, and I wanted to know, does it hold up, though? 
And so I think there's a proper place to challenge uh, conclusions. Does it, does it hold up? Does, does that only emphasis, that, that shift of focus, that no matter what happens, here's your prime directive to live a gospel-worthy life, does that charge, can we say that it carries that kind of weight, that come what may, this is the emphasis? So does it hold up when you consider the other range of commands that fill out this book? Because while he's delayed in giving many commands throughout this book, he's going to give several as we continue on. Well, I believe it does. I believe that it at the least encapsulates, actually, the range of expectations and commands that follows. And further, when considering the range of, this, uh, of his other commands in this letter, I've concluded that perhaps they not only broadly fall into this one great opening one, but also may help us round out the nature of this command too. So consider the nature of living worthy of the gospel in view of what also will be commanded throughout the book of Philippians. So we're going to see a number of things in the days ahead. We're going to see, fulfill my joy, chapter 2. And so he's going to build up. We're going to see this in a few weeks. If there's any of this, if there's this, if there's, and there is, then do this. Fulfill my joy, with a view to unity, by the way. And so fulfill my joy. That's subordinate, I would argue, to living a gospel-worthy life. Why? Because it's a life of service and submission and humility. And then we have also in chapter 2, verse 5, think this way. And think what way? Well, it's not just a Paul trying to encourage someone to, to line up with his pattern of thinking. He's trying to line them up with the patterns of this is how Christ handled himself. This is how Christ walked. And so, okay, that's certainly walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then we go on to chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, working out your salvation, that's certainly bringing yourself in submission to a worthy life, a gospel-worthy life. And then he continues, chapter 2, verse 14. Do not grumble or dispute. Okay, that's pressing us again toward that humble unity within the body of Christ, demonstrating, living out the gospel with one another. And then chapter 2, verse 18, rejoice and share your joy. Again, that's gospel intensive. That's the nature. Where's your joy? Where's it sourced? And why is it there? Well, because the gospel, a gospel-worthy life is one full of joy. And then we continue on chapter 2, verse 29. Or receive and honor faithful servants. Well, what's that about? Well, you have, remember, Epaphroditus, or we haven't necessarily got to him, so maybe you're just presuming you remember Epaphroditus. He was a faithful man who's labored to the point of almost losing or forfeiting his life in gospel service to others. Well, that is worthy of honor as well, and honoring such a man esteems the gospel. It demonstrates its worth. And then we go into chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Again, that gospel-oriented joy that's a natural product of the believer's life, and it demonstrates the worth of the gospel in you. Beware of threats in chapter 3, verse 2. It's actually beware, beware, beware. There's a heavy emphasis on those who do what? Who assault the gospel. A gospel-worthy life is going to be one of integrity to preserve the integrity of the gospel. Remember, contend, follow faithful examples, chapter 3, verse 17. And what's the, the nature of the example there? Well, it's Paul. Paul, who had that preeminent resume, set it aside, who had a clear trajectory in life and set it aside because all things are of no value in comparison to knowing Christ. Well, that's certainly the nature of a gospel-worthy life. And then chapter 4, verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. He's going to command, part of what we're going to see is subordinate to our command this week in terms of live a gospel-worthy life, and part of that is standing firm in one spirit. And then also chapter 4, verse 3, help those in need. Well, help who? Well, it's our two ladies there, Eutychus and Synthike. Um, oh, boy, I messed that up, didn't I? 
I don't have them right before me. Um, our two ladies, I'll just leave it at that in case I... Yodia, thank you, and Sitaki. Boy, I apologize for any Yodias out there, but nevertheless, and, and, and I'm going to press. I, I wanted to, I intended to, to develop a connection because I really hope you'll see this. And if you're not here next week, then just do due diligence. You're going to see verse 27 of chapter 1, this comparative, this command, and, and how it builds itself out beautifully parallels with chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 which I've come to more and more and more conviction that that is you have to understand 4 1 to 3 to really appreciate the book and you think well that's just a sidebar where Paul's resolving an interpersonal tension but really he's actually demonstrating the unity of mind in the Lord that is so critical that he's developing and cultivating amongst the Philippians and encouraging and strengthening and that's the nature of a gospel worthy life and then we have chapter 4 verse 5 let your considerate spirit be known be, um, then chapter uh, 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. These are all, again, I would argue, expressions of a gospel-worthy life. Chapter 4, verse 6, again, make your request made known to God. So submitting in a confidence to God and humility and prayer. Chapter 4, verse 8, think on worthy thoughts. We had a whole list there. Some, some people are good memorizers of, of, of texts and of various scriptures. That's a good one. That Think on these things. And it gives us a number of things to think on. Why, why think that way? Well, that's, that's the nature of gospel-worthy life. Their thoughts are directed in these ways. And then we have chapter 4, verse 9. Paul's, uh, put Paul's teaching and example to practice. And then finally, chapter 4, verse 21, greet the believers. Well, how's that a gospel-worthy life? Well, that's the nature of what we refer to as fellowship. And Paul loved the local body. And again, if I could just press that, I know it's a little bit of a, a me and pastoral emphasis, but I hope you'll see it's also a very Pauline emphasis. He wanted the body to be assembled. That's the nature of the church. And so it's no surprise that he would include even a command to greet one another. And that's the nature of a gospel-worthy life. And again, I, I know that's a significant list. It's a long list. I, I had to manipulate the font a number of times, and it's probably too small to be much use for you, but I, I want you to see it all. I want you to see all these range of commands that he's going to go on to provide this beloved church in the remaining three chapters of this book, a list that, as I mentioned, I believe helps us better understand what the nature of a gospel-worthy life looks like. And I think that's helpful in terms of getting a broad idea, a broad idea of how to fill the expected course of action here. So that's, again, that's a range of ways. It's a, it's a high level of view. You can, you can apply it this way and this way and this way. And then the letter's going to continue to develop with this continued view to gospel worthiness. But let's further look at some of the elements of the command itself, beginning with the nature of Paul's language here in the text proper. And so coming back to chapter 1, verse 27, we first might note Paul's use of this term for living one's life or living your life, a term that we observe only one other time in the New Testament, and it's part of Paul's personal testimony in Acts chapter 23. He's before the Sanhedrin, and now Paul, looking intently at the Sanhedrin, said, Brothers, I have lived my life in all good conscience before God up to this day. And we just pause there and do a complete sidebar with that is a remarkable testimony. Um, a lot of us have a, a lot of range to our stories, as it were. Boy, if, if that could summarize our life in one sentence, that I've, I've lived my life in all good conscience before God up to this day. Well, that's, I would argue, a gospel-worthy life. He knew what the Lord expected of him. I would argue that's exactly what he's doing here. But that aside, 
That's the only other reference we have to that, this uh, verb of live one's life. Uh, this, uh, the command here, it's a, just stated in verbal form there. So this would appear to be a, a rather direct and simple term. Live one's life. Uh, live this way. One that expresses how one has or should live their life. But the word choice would have perhaps caught the Philippians' attention a little bit more than it has ours as its association with living as a citizen. You know, you think, well, living as a citizen, well, it's actually part of the, 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 the term there, how it's, he could have picked other words, but he picked one that had a, a view to citizenship. And again, not to be like, well, in the Greek it says this, I, we're, that's not, even if you know it, even if you've mastered it, that's not part of our common vernacular, so I'm not going to borrow that, but I want you to realize they were hearing and seeing something there that that emphasis on living life also had a view to citizenship and by natural implication of being a good citizen. And the Christian Standard Bible chose to translate this first portion of 127 in just that way. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that is what we would say, uh, smoothing the text out as it were. Actually a good bit for translation. But, you know, that's not always necessarily a problem, is it? There's, there's a certain skill to that. And there's certain decisions. you got to be really careful when you're making smoothed out decisions. But perhaps it more plainly captures how the command would have been heard or received by the Philippians as this verb had that historic and cultural element to it. And with this, we have to have some things in mind here ourselves. I hope that many of you recall, I know it's been a number of weeks, but many of you, I hope, recall that Philippi was a Roman colony. Not just a city in, uh, under the, the larger control and domain of Rome, but it was a Roman colony, and a distinction as it were. It was effectively an extension of the city of Rome. And they were known to be quite proud of this, and as such it impacted the city's culture in terms of even um, dress, in terms of engagement. They acted like they were basically like a little satellite of Rome. And it gave it uh, the, the identity more, again, that of Rome than of being in Macedonia. It would be like... A, well, I, I couldn't speak to this. I know that certain large cities out in Los Angeles and New York, they have uh, Little Italy or uh, Chinatown. Never been in those contexts, but I presume it gives you a feel for that context. And certainly you'd have a feel for being in Rome, more so than Macedonia. So their view of being a good citizen would have naturally carried a clear weight to it. They wanted to be a good Roman citizen. That was part of their identity. A resident of Philippi wanted to be a good Roman citizen. Also, Take just a small peek ahead, and you'll see that Paul more overtly uses this language of citizenship at the end of chapter 3, where he states in verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there it's not, well, you'll see it if you see it. No, it's, it's just plainly there. It's directly there. Our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. Again, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is there. It's the noun form of the verb that we have here in our passage where we are commanded to live a certain way, to exercise good citizenship, as it were. Now, with this in view, we might should consider that citizenship was more than just a way of expressing geographical location. It wasn't um, uh, be, a, be a good southerner, or whatever that may or may not mean or include. It addressed one's relationship within a larger community. And so with that, actually, we, do, we are communicating something, aren't we? When we say be a good southerner, we, we sweeten our tea. We, we, uh, we draw in our dialect. I have regret that I've lost mine somewhere along the way. 
but nevertheless, I've actually been accused of, I've been asked if I'm from the north. I apologize, I'm from north, correct? It's okay, We're, we can't all be so fortunate, but nevertheless, I, I lost it somewhere along the way. But so there's, we are communicating something with that, not only geographical location, but a culture and an identity and, and part of things that you love and part of things that you prefer and that you're drawn to. And it's, again, it's also addressed with one's relationship within a larger community. There's expectations in community. A relationship of one, of which one was expected to be a contributing part. That's what a good citizen does. They contribute to their their community, right? Good citizens, not just isolating themselves, not wholly unlike again what a good citizenship or good citizenship is viewed today in our culture. And accordingly, some people are honored by a municipality as they represent the community's ideals, contribute to a unique way, or, or help others progress in a like manner. The, the community at large says, yes, they represent us. They, they are capturing the best of what we hope for us as a people, as a unit. And that's really what he's borrowing from, drawing from. Be good citizens. But not just good citizens of Philippi. And perhaps we also ought to consider that many within this believing community would have remembered or at the least heard about Paul exercising a measure of his dual citizenship as it were. When he was first among them, he with a proper pride in that context did leverage his Roman citizenship. If you remember, he was beaten and he says, no, that's, you're wrong for that. You, you ought not to have done that. And he makes it clear that it was his heavenly citizenship that held the priority for him, though. And so while he does lean on it and does use that, it was his heavenly citizenship that was the primary emphasis. But we see him exercising that. He understands that nature and that relationship. Still, again, he wanted to be faithful in both roles until he could not. And then obviously it would be the superior citizenship, that of heaven, that would prevail. So this is a bit of a loaded term, as it were. It's not just live live however that looks whatever that means no it's live as a good citizen what kind of citizen is a good citizen of the heavenly kingdom live worthy of that identity live worthy of the gospel and in view of the larger context of the book it should have us engaging this command with a view again to our heavenly citizenship and this is the nature of a and so i'm going to just Poise a question. I'm not necessarily expecting a response right now, but I, I do want you to wrestle with it. Maybe you, you ought to be thinking right now. So what is the nature of a good heavenly citizen? What's the nature of that? We're, we have an idea of what it, maybe a good southerner is or a good uh, midwesterner. We have a good idea. What is it? What's the nature of a good heavenly citizen? Well, I would argue, and I think Paul makes plain, it's living a gospel-worthy life it's bringing due honor and due glory to the gospel where we are now. That's living gospel worthy. It's, it's bringing the, the honor that's befitting the gospel. The glory that's befitting the gospel, making it plain here. And I remember I've, I've traveled um, in different places, a number of places, and again, speaking of southern culture, I've, I've mentioned this before, but it, it just I guess it just really stuck out, uh, stood out. Walking again, I, I know I've mentioned it here, I don't remember the context, but being in old Jerusalem, touring the city, and those Tennessee folks, they just recognize each other. <laughs> and then they lock in, they start their, their Tennessee chattering, or whatever it's called. And they're engaging one another, and there's an expectation, that, oh, you're, you're, good. you're a good citizen. You're bringing honor. You're, even wherever you go, people know, oh, yeah, Tennessee, they're proud of it. Don't you understand that's the nature of what we're getting at here? 
You have a heavenly citizenship, and you're traveling, you're walking about, not to be not the, oh, you're a good Southerner or a good Midwesterner, or we're not really sure where you are from because you're, you lost your accent along the way or, or whatever may have happened. But it's clear that that's a citizen of the kingdom. That's a kingdom citizen. And again, being worthy or living worthy is a course of actions that reflects something or uh, reflects something or someone's value or impact. That's what it's like to, to demonstrate their worthiness. You're, you're living and your course of actions, your thoughts, your language is reflecting. There's a worthiness to this. I'm, I'm proud of these things. I, I'm identifying with it. I'm, I'm associating with it. I'm making it much, making much of it. And we see this modeled in the various ways that this term is used in other places. In Romans 16, 1 to 10. Phobia was to be received in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. And so we understand that. What's the nature of that language? That the word that worthy. Well, there was an expectation that saints or fellow believers were to be received with a measure of honor, respect, and kindness. And such was how this faithful woman was to be received too. Again, with the honor that was befitting her. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. An exhortation to walk worthy of one's calling. Well, the immediate context demonstrates that walking worthy of one's calling was expressed or worked out with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and keeping the unity of the Spirit. That's what it looked like to walk worthy of one's calling. Colossians 1, 9-12, Paul prayed for the Colossians to have a knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they would walk worthy of the Lord. And again, the immediate context demonstrates that this was expressed or worked out in pleasing the Lord and bearing fruit and growing in knowledge and being strengthened for steadfastness and patience and in thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 2, 10-12, Paul and his companions were exhorting, encouraging, and bearing witness so that they would walk worthy of the, of the God who calls them into his kingdom. And then even in 3 John verse 6, sending faithful workers out in a manner worthy of God, similar to how one receives faithful believers, there's also a fitting way to send them out too, with a proper measure of honor, esteem, and joy. And so we have two passages speaking to the receiving and sending of faithful believers in a worthy manner, worthy of the saints, Romans 16, worthy of God, 3 John. And we have three passages speaking to walking worthy, walk worthy of one's calling, Ephesians 4, walk worthy of the Lord, Colossians 1, walk worthy of God, 1 Thessalonians 2. And now the call to live worthy, the call to live worthy, to, to exercise your citizenship in a manner worthy worthy of the power and glory of God expressed in the redemption provided through Christ's completed work of humility, death, resurrection, ascension, and sure return. Worthy of the gospel. Worthy of drawing due honor to it. Worthy of drawing due glory to it. Worthy of your association with it. But how do we live worthy of that? How do we live worthy of the gospel? I mean, if we honestly we just stopped um, exhorting and if we just stopped saying, well, this is what it can look like and, and, and maybe this is how it can look like and we can put these commands to practice. I think, honestly, it comes to a point in time where it's like we're driving around. We finally realize, I don't know how I got here and I don't know what turn to take because how do you really, and just really pause and carefully think, how do you really, at the end of the day, live worthy of the gospel? Again, I can give you all kinds of anecdotal things. I can give you comparisons and I can give you challenges, but... Does that mean that does the sum total of that? Does the parts of it? Do my effort is am I living worthy of the gospel? I think considering that expectation here can, can be all but crippling. 
And if it does not at least bring you close to some measure of crushing burden of expectation, then I'm not sure you've heard the matter clearly, as I didn't say, well, worthy of your identification with Grace Bible Church. That's not that hard. That would be loving one another, growing in grace, trying to care for one another, doing right, assembling with the saints. We can do that. We can walk worthy of that. This is an extraordinarily high charge that we've been given. Walk worthy of the gospel. That's pretty extraordinary. And if I, I don't want to leave you crippled, though. I've, I've almost been crippled by such things because you think about it like, oh, I don't know, I, I can't. And then what do you do? I mean, you don't do anything. And so let me just pause. I, I wasn't going to pause, but I think I should pause here because if you felt a proper burden, then I want you to think about this. You probably, so Denise actually got a, a text or something last night, I don't know, get a questionnaire survey. If you're wondering who fills those surveys out, it's, it's Denise. Um, and as, a, as, the, as you peeled the onion, eventually they're asking more and more precise questions and they're figuring her out and they're asking, are you basically a Christian? Are you evangelical? And just, and like, uh, your name is Denise. And that's, it's just gonna, it's peeling it back. They figured her out, they pegged her. And that will skew the survey accordingly. But you probably would be comfortable to say, yes, I'm a Christian. I don't know, that's a pretty weighty thing to say, isn't it? That I'm identified as Christ, that for to me to live is Christ and die is gain, that, I'm, that I've put my confidence in the Redeemer and that he who began a good work, he will bring it to completion. And yet we're prepared to say that, prepared to say a rather weighty identity, that we've been separated from this world, separated to God. But we are prepared to do that, aren't we? We're okay with that. Because we also know that the Lord is very gracious in his work and that he is sanctifying Christ in us. He will conform Christ in us. He is very patient through this process. And so I do want to, I do want to maintain a measure of tension. I want, you to, I want you to be bothered by living a gospel-worthy life because it's all but impossible and yet it's what we're expected to do. But I don't want you to be so crushed that you just don't do anything. So feel a tension, but also feel that same resolution that you are happy to say, yes, I'm in Christ, even though... Boy, I don't know that I always represent and express that as well as I ought to. But such is the nature of pursuing a gospel-worthy life. Feel that tension. I just want to leave that there. Because I don't know that we can resolve it. I don't want to resolve it. Because I want you to keep pressing and pressing and feeling that, boy, that's just beyond my grasp. That's okay. That's okay. Because one day you'll die and you'll reach. But in the meantime, it is interesting. It is interesting how we reflect something or someone's worthiness because we do it all the time, don't we? We, we are communicating what something is worth, worth to us and worth in this environment, in this culture, in this community. And, and it shows up everywhere. And to, to have any measure of balance to our lives, we have to constantly mark and make evaluations of something or someone's worthiness. We invest more time, more attention and resources in proportion to the value or due esteem of something or someone. And so that helps us, doesn't it? Otherwise, if everything is worthy of everything, then we'll get nothing done. You've, you've skewed the value of things. So we work harder on some things. We work harder for some people. We invest more resources and attention in some things than some people. But some people still may say, well, no, no, not me. I give my all to all things all the time. Well, that sounds great, but it's probably neither realistic nor wise. And, and I don't think it's a proper valuation. What's really valuable? What's not as valuable? So there's a distinction communicated in how we express worthiness. And this brings me back again to that question that I want to, to bother you so as to provoke you, but not bother you so as to, to, to restrict you. 
So again, we come back to how can we possibly live worthy of the gospel? Where is that balance of valuation? Well, for Paul, it was what? I count all things as loss. It's all garbage in view of knowing Christ. Can you live like that? Well, Paul did to, to live with Christ, to die is gain. But that was Paul. Yeah, it was. And Paul was exemplary, not just sharing. He was providing an example. Well, how'd that example work itself out? Well, it goes to write what he's commanded us now. Live your, word, live your life worthy of the gospel. And it's hard. And I don't know we're ever going to resolve that tension. And don't. Because you need to keep pressing and pressing and pressing. And to follow up, what, what does that even mean, though? What does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? Well, to this, you might be thinking, no, wait a minute. Did we not just round out this command with a view to the larger range of the commands in this letter? I, I saw them. There was like 18 of them. They're really small. But all those commands, you kind of walk through them very quickly. Well, I do think that's a, a way to express the worthy of the gospel approach to life and submitting to those range of commands all throughout the, uh, the, the scriptures and specifically Philippians and, again, broader. So, yes, I would agree. I would still stand by that, but I would also have to concede that this conclusion by itself lacks a necessary specificity that I think Paul would have us introduced here, even within our text, because that's a categorical addressment of it, associating commands, and, but we want a direct path of action, and I think he provides that for us. He's going to give us some clarity, but he's already given us some, and it would be to the point where if we said, Paul, would you give us clarity? I think you might be like, well, I will. I will give you clarity but already have too. So consider a few things here just for a moment. You remember we took, I don't know, I thought I was going to cover it in a larger chunk and then it became its own section and then it was two or three weeks. Remember how he prayed for the Philippians? Remember why he prayed for them? How did he set it up in verse 8? That I have an affection for you, the affection of Christ Jesus, that, that welling up of emotion and, and physical response. And how does it produce itself? It's the very affection of Christ, and it shows itself in his praying for them. And what does he pray for them? And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in full knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and without excuse me, without fault until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, what does that have to do with living a gospel-worthy life? I thought you were going to narrow it down. You gave us the general commands throughout the book, and now you've said you're going to be more precise, and you've said now he was precise, and you've taken us to prayer. Well, again, we took some time to unpack these verses a number of weeks ago, and since that time, I've broadly stated that you know, if we just want to summarize it, we could summarize it as a view to the, a prayer with a view to their sanctification. And for our purposes now, I'd encourage you to consider whether or not this pattern of progressive maturity, uh, consider the, uh, the, the, excuse me, for our purposes, consider the pattern of progressive maturity he's expressing in this prayer, increasing in knowledge and discernment to the approving of the excellent and finally the conducting of oneself in sincerity and blamelessness. So think about that. That's how I prayed for them. And what's the connection? What's to live a worthy life if you're going to be more precise? Well, again, how did he pray? Increasing in knowledge and discernment, approving the excellent, and conducting oneself in sincerity and blameless. I would argue that's a clear pattern for living a gospel-worthy life. And so we're like, well, Paul, how, how, how are we ought to do this? Increase in knowledge and discernment, approving that which is excellent, and conducting oneself in sincerity and blamelessness all with a view to Christ's exaltation. And as such, we see that Paul was praying for them 
that which he would go on to command of them. So remember, we took a lot of time. We talked about how is he praying for them? What does that mean? How do these elements work it out? And then just summarize it. Well, it's a prayer of sanctification. Now I want you to see that what he's commanding, he's already prayed for. He's not just drawing something out like, okay, I've been talking, 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 ah, command. No, I've been talking and building and cultivating and praying, and that all informs this command. We also noted that how Paul modeled some things. So we saw how he prayed, and we saw how he modeled. He modeled some things, an esteemed valuation and submission of the gospel. Again, verses 15 to 21, some to be sure are preaching Christ for even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that would, but with all excuse me, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and die is gain. And again, as we've pressed for a few weeks now, Paul plainly esteemed the gospel over himself and then goes on to model this by vigorous pursuit of magnifying Christ in his body by life or by death. An approach to life that has swallowed him up in Christ, therefore for Paul to live was Christ and die was gain. And so by way of Paul's prayer and by Paul's example, what is the nature of example? That the gospel is to be esteemed, that the gospel is to be declared, that the gospel is to dictate even swallow up your life. That was his example. So he prayed and a view to their being worthy of the gospel. And he modeled a life worthy of the gospel. And so then he gives this command. It's not a surprise. It's not out of any, it's not out of nowhere. Praying and modeling, commanding. Live your lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live in a manner worthy of the honor, due the power and glory of God that's expressed in the redemption provided through Christ's completed work of humility, death, and resurrection, ascension, and sure return. That's our charge. I don't know. How do I apply it? He prayed for the elements that we ought to put to action. He showed us the elements we ought to put to action. So once more, we have a weighty charge. So let's make sure we're considering just how it might work itself out in our lives. First, again, we concluded that this is not only the first, but presumably the broadest and chief command of the book, one under which all the other subsequent commands can be viewed as points of application. Second, we noted that Paul's first prayed that for which he's going to express, he expects of his readers, a sanctification that has a view to the day of Christ, a sanctification expressed in gospel-worthy life. And then third, we just saw that Paul himself was modeling a life that was pursuing to be found worthy of the gospel of Christ, a life esteemed and wholly submitted itself to the gospel of Christ. And now, we're going to take note of a greater specificity. And so we saw, generally, commands. They fall into this. This is a gospel-worthy life. We saw how he prayed. We saw how he modeled. We saw how he's charged. Now let's drill down just a little bit more. And this will carry over to next week, but we're going to at least begin the next portion of our engagement with our text in verses 27 and 28. And here we'll see that it will include the expectation of our standing firm. That's part of a gospel-worthy life. Our contending together, that's a gospel-worthy life. And our not being alarmed by opposition. Again, all elements framed with a profound emphasis on unity and directing us to a gospel-worthy life. 
But before we walk through these elements, or even a portion thereof, we need to note how Paul continued to frame their context. He framed the context. Remember, I want to come to you. I'm desiring to come to you. It's for your best. And then he goes on to say, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances. So I, I, I desire to be with you. This is, and it's not only, it's not just even my chief desire. My chief desire is to be with Christ, but it's for your good. And so I'm going to desire, I'm going to pursue, I'm going to make plans accordingly. But either way, whatever happens, your charge is to live a gospel-worthy life. And I want you to know whether I come or whether I don't come, whether I remain absent, I want to hear, I either want to see or I want to hear about your circumstances. Now again, I've tried to make plain over the last few weeks that Paul very clearly desired and valued his own presence among the Philippians. That's very clear. He wants to be with them. And in some measure was an element of his sacrificial care to them. And so he planned his days accordingly. However, he was also quite aware of the ways of God's providence that maybe he won't be among them. So while he was likely to come, he wanted his expectations to be clear. Namely, that he desired, even expected, to hear a good report of gospel faithfulness from the Philippians, to hear that they were living their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, you might think, well, I, th I thought we are going to get to the particulars, and that sounds like a, a sidebar again, one of the, maybe one of general historical consequence, but it's really more than that. It's much more than that. And I think it's important for us to appreciate this because it's rather quite instructive. And in what way? Why is this instructive? Well, Paul clearly had an expectation of the Philippians. He would either see or hear of their faithfulness in these matters. So don't miss that. Paul viewed his command. He gave a command. Live your lives worthy of the gospel. And he viewed that command to live worthy of the gospel as a matter to be obeyed. He did not view it as a romantic ideal to flirt with in our more pious moments. With, yeah, you know what? I'm really going to strive for that. I think I might do that one day. I'm really going to work hard. No. It's not some kind of, again, some pious daydream. He didn't view it as a matter to simply sing about when engaging truth-rich songs. You know, part of what we do, and it's part of why it was important to put words up, is we're, we're affirming truth and we're singing these things together. And we can sing big things, but we got to walk and live and do big things. And he didn't view it as a subject of conversation in which we're expressing frustrations that someone might demand of us unreasonable things. Can you believe that? He kept charging and emphasizing and saying it was a command to walk worthy of the gospel like anybody really can do that. Well, actually, Paul said, I either want to see it or hear about it. He wanted to see this truth at work. And if you couldn't come in person, then he expected to hear about it because it was a command that he expected action with. Paul expected for the Philippians what we must expect of ourselves, that they would be exemplary kingdom citizens while in the land of their sojourning. Now, what was Paul expecting to see or hear of their own progress in these matters? He makes it very clear here that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Standing firm is effectively, or it's our first element here, it's effectively, it's, it's holding your ground. It's holding your ground. Um, again, uh, Denise just has the plight of being in proximity to me and with that illustrations. But we were cross country yesterday and the course has gaps in it so that pedestrians can cross and why they need to and want to, I'm not really sure. But nevertheless, it's part of it. But occasionally you have to stop them 
You have to stop them from crossing because they'll obstruct the runners. And so what do you have to do? You have to stand firm. If you're just like, well, I shouldn't go. What? I'm going. No, it's got to be no. And then hold your ground. Stand firm. It's effectively, again, holding your ground, not forfeiting that which is rightfully yours or entrusted to your care. So this would find the most natural application in matters of doctrine and practical holiness, both of which are commonly assaulted and challenged. And Paul would say, stand firm in these things. And it's here that the gospel is put on daily display and its worth is shown through our tenaciously believing and operating in its truths, not forfeiting ground to that which deviates or contradicts God's truth, not in speech nor in conduct. So what are some ways? What are some ways to think through this? Well, perhaps not forfeiting ground simply because the, the common arguments of men argue against God's truth. Hold your ground. God is the author of truth. You don't, we don't pretend like, well, I don't know, you know, the Bible says this, but, there's no but. It might be the Bible says this, but I don't fully understand it, and I'm going to strive to understand it because I submit to an authority. And so we recognize that God's truth is truth, so we hold our ground. And what would be an example of that? Well, I think an easy example of that would be something like the doctrine of creation. It provides us a, a very relatable example. It's easy to capitulate to common opinions here, and, and there's often much pressure to do just that, be it in academic or professional circles. But holding one's ground honors the God who not only spoke all things into existence, but as the creator of all things, he's also the Lord of all things. And while creation would appear to be in great turmoil at times, and things don't, they're not as they ought to be, we can all recognize that. We continue to hold our ground and stand firm by affirming that when God spoke, it was good, but that sin introduced death, corruption, and loss. And yet the gospel declares there will be a day in which the present heavens and earth will pass away. There will be a great and final judgment, and the Creator will make all things new. And those who have been redeemed in Christ will forever enjoy His presence in a new heavens and a new earth. Holding to that is tenaciously standing firm, doctrinally standing firm. What about practical holiness? Uh, what's an example of, of standing firm in matters of practical holiness? I'm just trying to think about areas that are assaulted, that, that we get pushed and moved with. We don't want to be pushed and moved. We don't want to be pushed and moved in doctrine or in practical holiness. And so I think of uh, a general example here. Standing firm in matters of holiness could most easily perhaps be expressed by way of one's choice regarding entertainment. We, we live in an entertainment-rich environment. So often, I think, and maybe I'm just critiquing things too broadly, but I think often we, we, we fortify the front door. We, we're, we're diligent. Is it locked? Is it bolted? Is it secured? Well, leaving the back door wide open, effectively telling a carnal world that as long as its perversities are not experienced in one's immediate presence, at least not one's personal presence, and so long as we agree to regard the whole matter as a fictional engagement, it isn't, you know, you can assault our holiness as you desire. And as such, it gets a pass to defame God's name. Oh, they only said the Lord's name this many times. I'm sorry, that was, that was how many times? In which they, they, they took the, the name of the Lord of glory and made little of it or mocked it or used it in profanity to proclaim, or, and you know, you get, to, you get to express the coarsest of jokes because it's entertainment or let the profanity roll as it were and display conduct that would have us labeled a deviant to have watched in any other context than on a screen you saw it somewhere else, you'd be a pretty nasty person. But to watch it on a screen, that's okay because it's entertainment. And such is all too common. And it's not a fair and accurate representation of a heavenly citizen. It's not standing firm. But here the gospel reminds us of the nature, cost, and outworking of our redemption, just as Peter so beautifully expressed it in his first letter. 
Therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your feudal con conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 19. And so we stand firm. We stand firm in one spirit, and we also contend. We fight. We fight for the honor of the gospel. And many a man has and will fight for the honor of their name. And, and sometimes there's actually, I don't know if the laws of the state of Georgia have changed, that every July 1st they're subject to change and being or modified and increased or otherwise. But it used to be part of the statute for a fight, there would be something called fighting words. Words that are commonly understood that to be expressed, and it can be any number of things depending on the context, will produce a, a fighting context. And it's, there's a measure of, the law has a measure of sympathy in that regard. And for a lot of people, there's fighting words. You don't dishonor the, the name or the honor of their name or the honor of their family or, or someone they care about or the honor of their country. And there's often noble grounds for such engagements of defending the honor of something, but there's no nobler fight than the honor of the gospel. And so it's expected that as good kingdom citizens that we contend together, we strive, we fight, we, we, we wrestle for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel being a manner of expressing the doctrines, truths, and precepts of the scriptures, truths that have the gospel of Christ as their source and substance. And so we tenaciously declare Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ risen, Christ ascended, and Christ returning. We make plain that there is a holy and just God who sovereignly governs the affairs of all men and to which all men will give an account. We make plain that we do not legislate morality, but we also do not stand silent as wicked men advance their profane purposes. And though we are God's sheep, we engage wolves, notably those who parade about in wool, covering, wool coverings, waving about the banner of Christ while having no affection for him or understanding of his truths. We heed Jude's exhortation, contending earnestly for the faith which was once for, all, once for all handed down to the saints. And we do this not because we have found an appetite for a good fight. There's some people that just love a good fight, and that's not what Paul is getting at here, but because the faith of the gospel is worthy of being upheld, and as such, we live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, I know we've said much today. This is, I didn't, I didn't cover everything. I apologize, but I hope you've heard at least a, a critical component of these points of action because I don't want you to miss this. If you're back next week, you'll get this. I'm going to really drill down on it. But I'd be really grieved if you walk away or if you're not with us again and you miss this because if you miss this, then I've really I've, I've shorted the text. We've talked about um, standing firm. We've talked about contending for the faith, but in what manner, what manner? The manner in which we're to stand firm is in one spirit. And with one mind, we contend together for the faith of the gospel. One spirit with one mind together. There's an indispensable component here, and it is unity. 
and some intimate unity of spirit and mind fostered and protected among the local fellowship believers, a matter of incredible importance that we will return to next week. But I want you to see it now that that unity you can't forfeit. It's not that I'm a gospel citizen. I'm living worthy of the gospel. And I'm doing these things. No, we do this. And that's why if you look at chapter 4, you start to think like, oh, that's why David keeps drawing back to that. Because he has two ladies that did this together and with him. And now there's something that's disrupted their fellowship. And Paul goes out of his way. The only really overt critique toward a believer in the whole book outside of, you know, they preach Christ for these reasons, but in this are joy. Really, he's driving at Restore their unity. So don't miss that. Well, if you miss that, then we've I've shorted you. So it's a matter of great importance. Again, we'll return to it next week as we advance further in this matter of living in a matter worthy of the gospel of Christ. But as we conclude for today, I, I want to direct your attention back to a brief conversation in Acts. And this was when Paul was initially arrested in Jerusalem, an arrest that would begin his journey to Rome from where he wrote this letter. And this was the moment when the Jewish people were, they were in a frenzy over Paul allegedly taking Gentiles into the temple, a charge that was found not to be true, but nevertheless it precipitated the events that continued and brought him from uh, Jerusalem to Caesarea and ultimately to Rome. And amidst the excitements, the Romans intervened and ultimately determined that we'll get to the bottom of this matter by examining him by flogging grateful that's not the nature of resolving interpersonal conflicts now but nevertheless it was it was a legitimate course of action unless it's a Roman citizen Acts chapter 22 verses 23 through 29 and as they were crying out and throwing off their garments and tossing dust in the air the commander ordered him Paul to be brought into the barracks stating that he should be examined by flogging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way but when they stretched him out with leather straps, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, drawing on his Roman citizenship, Is it lawful for you to flag a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported to him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. And the commander answered, I acquired the citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I have been born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately withdrew from him, and the commander also was afraid when he learned that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. Now, we could take time, if we had it, to, to work through Paul's shrewd use of his Roman citizenship, something we also observed during his time in Philippi under similar conditions. But what I would rather draw your attention to is that his Roman citizenship was clearly an honorable identity that he came by to by way of birth, and this soldier by way of a great sum of money. And I presume everyone here that um, is a U.S. citizen, or maybe not everybody, but I I'll just operate with a general presumption that if you're a U.S. citizen, you came to it by way of birth. And there's something to be proud of with that. I, I'm, I'm grateful that in God's providence, this is where I was born. It became my identity, and it carries through wherever I go in the world. And there may be a shrewd use of that identity at times. But regardless, if in Christ, you also have another citizenship. One that you came to by way of great cost, but not one that you paid. It's not like this conversation with, how did you become a citizen in the kingdom of heaven? Well, you know, I was born into it. My family was a church member. No. I acquired it by great cost. Yeah, but not because you did anything. It's a citizenship that may not secure us any special rights or privileges in this world, but it knows no bounds of advantages in the days to come. And it's a citizenship for which you ought to be properly proud. You know, I... 
I've shared before, I had a, a friend in college, his parents were missionaries, and he was, they were on the mission field when he was born, and I think it was a Bruce Springsteen song, Born in the USA, had become popular when he was young, and he was so frustrated because he couldn't sing it. He wasn't born in the USA. You know what? So what? There's things that which you could be proud of, but this is one that you ought to be proud of, that you've been born again and therefore born into a heavenly citizenship. And strive, therefore, to live worthy of that citizenship by way of the range of commands given us, by way of your sanctification with a view to the day of Christ, by way of magnifying Christ in your body by life or by death, and by way of standing firm, contending, and not being alarmed by your opponents. Honoring that citizenship is a far cry from Macbeth's tragedy of an existence. By contrast to his candle that would quickly dim, this is a candle that burns not briefly, but brighter, brighter and brighter and brighter, and in time with all the more, it will perfectly shine. Enjoying the homeland of our citizenship. When we do set aside the temporal, when our dual citizenship expires, it won't matter what your identity was here or by what means you acquired it. There will be one citizenship if you're in Christ. And the call now is to live worthy of that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Paul's amazing example. If anybody ever loved you or your church, it's quite plain that he did. And out of an abundance of affection, his desire was to certainly to be with you. But if if it was necessary, if he, if he might demonstrate Christ all the more clearly than to remain on with the Philippians. And I think about that. What a, what a weighty, precious service to others. And, and in view of that, what, is he, what will he command of them? What will he expect of them? Well, we have that quite plainly now. Live worthy of the gospel. Be faithful kingdom citizens. And there's a weightiness to that, Lord, a weightiness that we can't... How are we going to rise to that? Well, through prayer and struggle and conformity to Christ with a view to the, the Lord's return, to the, to the view to the day of Christ, by walking in obedience, by holding our ground, standing firm, by opposing that which is contrary to truth and defending that which is gloriously revealed in your word. And as we'll see also by not being fearful by our opponents, those who, who would defame and make little of you and your great glory. And so, Lord, we ask that you be our help. That's perhaps the, the, the beginning of the long road to um, kingdom faithfulness, to, to being a good citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, be our help. We need help and we want to be found faithful. We don't want to just tenaciously hold our ground in our own strength. That'll just make us really proud and very arrogant. We don't want to be right about things and, and wrong about application. We don't want to, to love less or just do things because we ought to. We want to, again, be governed by our affection. We want to be ones who, as Paul exemplified, to live as Christ, to die as gain. So, Lord, we again, we give thanks to you. We give thanks to you because you are good and kind and you will work. You will sanctify Christ in us. You will help us to be good kingdom citizens. And so we, we thank you for that and ask that we would strengthen and encourage one another to that end.